Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today we are cracking on with my book review of Honey Bee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. This chapter that we will be dealing with today is chapter seven, initiating the move to a new home. And it tackles the question of honeybee scout signaling. So how do scouts know when the swarm is ready to fly to the new nest site? How do they ensure readiness from their sisters who have been resting peacefully in the swarm cluster? And do scouts use a consensus sensing or quorum sensing method to decide when the debate is over and when it's time to get moving? So listen in and I'm going to do my best to answer these questions as I do a detailed recap of chapter seven of the book. Now, as always, before I get into the nitty gritty, I'm going to do some quick updates. And for my homestead updates, um, really the biggest thing I want to talk about is what I have been jokingly calling Operation Duckling Flight which if you follow my Instagram, you know that last Friday I ended up rescuing two ducklings that had been dumped by a local canal. So just to kind of cover the story in a bit more depth, because there's only so much you can write on Instagram before you run out of space and before people's eyes cross, I think. Basically what happened is... um, Friday was a nice day here. It was, you know, moderate temperature. It was going to get up into the 50s by the afternoon. And even though I actually did have work to do on a couple of various projects, including this podcast, I decided that I couldn't let this beautiful weather pass and that I would run out with Chappie, my little adventure whippet, and do a brisk three mile hike somewhere. Now, for whatever reason, it came into my head to visit a specific trailhead of the Ohio Erie Canal towpath trail that's actually in Stark County as opposed to Summit County. And I usually do the Summit County ones, but for whatever reason, this trailhead popped in my head. I haven't been there since last year in November. And even in the car on the way out, I was really torn. Should I go? Should I go to one that was closer? And I just decided you know, to heck with it. We'll make this slightly longer drive to Stark County and uh, give it a go. And I'm really, really glad that I did because when I turned into the car park, it's very, very small car park and right next to it is a canal. And as I'm turning in, I saw something white and fluffy by the canal. So I park the car, I get out, you know, I get chaps out. And immediately I see quite a large white yellow duckling snuggled up with a brown duckling of roughly the same size, a little smaller. And immediately I thought, gosh, that doesn't look right. Um, For one, they're really big and I haven't seen any ducks or geese or any other waterfowl actually sitting on nests. It seems very early to have a duckling of that size. And also, I've never actually seen a yellow or white duckling before in the wild. But, uh, all the ones around here tend to be just brown. I could probably see that we might have some wild ducks that would be like brown and yellow, but not yellow like that, like something you'd see 
on an Easter card. So I I just was like, okay, well, I made a mental note, but I went on with my hike and we had a beautiful walk. Um, Chaps was in a great mood. He was super responsive. We just sort of charged down. Um, The walk goes by the canal on one side and a river on the other side. And the water in the river was moving relatively fast because of previous rain that we've had. So there's this beautiful noise in the background. The birds are out. You know, I was having a great time. And on the way back, we get close to the parking lot and those ducklings are still there and they haven't even moved. And so I'm looking and I got as close as I dared with Chappie and he actually didn't really seem to register their presence. And what surprised me was that the ducklings could see me and they could see Chappie. We were really, really close. And aside from a little like tail waggling and my kind of cute little noises they didn't seem upset at all. Now, meanwhile, all of the wild adult ducks that we had encountered, if they were on the side near the path and we passed them, they immediately swam out. So I'm just thinking this isn't right. And there was an older guy there and I actually, uh, he saw me taking pictures and he was commenting on them. And I said, do these look like wild ducklings to you? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. So I got home and I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. So I posted the pictures online. And again, if you're on Instagram, you would have seen me asking for identification help. And it didn't take long that the majority of the responses that I got were not just that those were domestic, but I actually heard from a number of people that the yellow one was a Pekin duck, which is a very popular domestic duck bred for mainly for meat consumption I'm sure if you've had duck before it was probably a Pekin duck and they're also very popular as pets because they're super cute little yellow fluffy archetypical ducklings when they're babies and then they grow into these quite I think quite handsome white ducks who are very personable so I'm thinking about all of this and the day is getting on and um, I, I just can't let it go I have I know I have to do something So long story short, I decide that if ducks are anything like chickens, they will go into almost like like a torpor state when they fully sleep at night when it's dark. And this would make them easier to capture because they're very close to the water. And I was worried that if I startled them, that they would get in the water and then there'll be no way for me to rescue them because it's not like I have a giant net or something I could use. So I asked my husband, I said, I can't, I can't let this go. Could we please go out after dark and try and save these babies? And of course, not even like pausing. He's like, absolutely. So we had dinner. Um, I waited until it was dark. I grabbed the cat carrier that I used to transport chickens and, you know, some blankets and everything. And we made the drive out. Now, I don't want this story to get too long, but the drive out was a little intimidating because half of it goes through like a farm area and we have a lot of deer here and um, they can cause a lot of damage to cars. We recently just had our car repaired from deer damage. So it was a little nerve wracking for me uh, because I was very worried that deers were going to come out of nowhere and we did actually encounter a number of them, but thankfully we saw them in advance. We were able to stop. 
also I have really bad night vision (laughs) so it was just a little intimidating anyway Um, but yeah we get there they haven't moved these ducklings have not moved at all and just to really make it clear that they didn't belong there they're not on a nest there's no sign of their adults and there's no way that if their parents were there they wouldn't have returned after dark and so I've got me welly bobs on because you know I'm I'm thinking I might end up in the canal and I'm hoping it's shallow enough there that I don't get completely soaked. But actually, I had no problem getting them. They barely tried to get away. They actually were avoiding the water. And I now know that the reason why is because uh, ducklings have to be taught to swim when they're little like that. Because in the wild, mum would be rubbing the oil from her feathers that make her sort of waterproof or water resistant onto the babies and then would encourage them out into the water when you raise ducklings yourself they don't have that oil you don't have that oil to give them so you have to very carefully let them swim in like shallow areas and like build up their confidence and all this kind of stuff but anyway so we caught them I was absolutely delighted I couldn't believe it I was just on a high for the rest of the evening I got them all set up in the quote unquote chicken hospital but with a slightly different setup so they had you know, water to um, that was shallow so they couldn't, you know, knock it everywhere. I filled it with like stones so they couldn't tip it. You know, I know water is very important for ducks to eat things. I know that they also have to be kept dry. And anyway, so I had a hard time sleeping that night. I was like a kid at Christmas, just so riled up from saving these ducklings. And over the course of time that we had them, which wasn't that long, I dropped them off Sunday to go to a waterfowl rescue and sanctuary. But in that short time, so from Friday after dark until I dropped them off on Sunday, I fell madly in love with them. They are so friendly. They're so silly. They just are really outgoing and they eat right from your hand straight away. There's just none of the flightiness that I've experienced with chickens and I was just so in love with them that um, I I did struggle Saturday night I had a little bit of a cheeky cry because I really didn't want to let them go but I knew it was the right thing because I don't have the setup for them they're way too small to even consider throwing them in with the chickens which I wouldn't do anyway because the rooster's still being a jerk and I don't want him to hurt them so I knew it was the right thing to do and the only positive that came out of it is that my husband is now also on board with us getting ducks in the future because he also fell in love with them. He was very charmed by them and so uh, right now the plan is that I will be figuring out how I want to set up a like a duck enclosure um, what I want it to look like whether I'm going to build it or buy something and um, I'm trying not to rush that project so after I have done this book review of Honeybee Democracy you can expect an in-depth episode about uh, duck care and uh, what's involved in raising ducks because I'm going to be doing all the research that I can before I bring babies home and I'm going to drop a link in the episode description and on my blog of the name of the rescue that uh, took them. Um, it's the Mid-Ohio, Mid-Ohio Waterfowl Rescue, excuse me. 
Um, and I think they just have the Facebook page right now, but it's a really, really great rescue. Um, the owner of it occasionally does fundraisers. She takes in a lot of ducks with medical problems and she also does adopt out. So if you're interested in helping a, do- a duck in need and you live in Ohio, this could be a good option for you. So check the episode description for that information. All right, so on to hive updates, and these aren't as positive. So my, um, I had two colonies remaining after the last loss that I shared on the previous episode, and I am now down to one colony. So Queen Marker, who has been with me since I bought my very first two nucleus colonies and started this journey, this journey even, <clears throat> Queen Marker is no more. She has died. And I'm really, I'm very confused about exactly what happened. So for this particular colony, I did discover that I had rather stupidly left on an open screen bottom board, which made me worry that basically too much cold air was coming in through the bottom. And so I did feel really bad about that. But when I went in last Tuesday and discovered this problem, because it was a lovely day, it was in the 60s like low 60s but still um the colony was small but still hanging in there and what I decided to do after some thinking was because there was so many dead bees in there that they just hadn't cleaned out they just hadn't been strong enough to clean them out so what I ended up doing was I separated the boxes I cleaned out the dead bees and I put the box with the current bees on it on the bottom I made sure that they were on about three or four frames and I made sure to put honey frames I moved the frames so the honey frames were right next to them so they wouldn't have to travel to get that food and then I sorted the box above them so that they'd have honey completely above them as well so if they had to start moving up again they're moving directly up into food stores Um, and obviously I put a solid bottom board on and I did the same for my other colony my Saskatraz daughter colony and for both of them after I moved the boxes like this and made sure they had access to honey frames I also put the feeders on you know I'm not taking any chances so I did that on Tuesday I came back on Friday and Queen Marker's colony was dead but what was bizarre was that um, I think it only just happened because I found her and she was the most intact of the dead queens that I found so far like she looks like she might have recently died like within a couple of days like two days and um also there just were hardly any bees in there and so I almost feel like what happened since Tuesday is that half or more of that colony just buggered off if you'll excuse my French or British (laughs) but I really think they just left I think some of them absconded and what they left behind of an already very very small colony just couldn't survive even with the honey right there they just couldn't make it and as a result that tiny cluster perished and as did the queen now I found this on Friday which is also the day that I rescued the ducklings and to kind of go back to that story I felt so sick about what had happened with Queen Marker's colony because I felt like I had done this, that the screen board, that moving them, that it was too much. 
I'd ruined it. I'd I'd messed things up. And I really felt sick about it. It hit me probably the hardest of all the losses that I've had. And with this thing of the ducks going on, I felt like I was supposed to find those ducklings that on this day when things were bad, I was supposed to do something good and I had to go and I had to save them. And I know that's magical thinking and I know it doesn't make any sense, but it really made it so important to me that I found those ducks. And on top of it, I'd actually just been talking to my husband a couple of weeks ago about bringing ducks onto our homestead and he had tentatively agreed. And then I find ducklings who needed help. And it reminded me so much of when we moved into this house and I knew I wanted to get chickens. And then I found a chicken with a little cut beak, Babette, my very first rescue hen in a parking lot. And so I felt like this was the universe telling me that, yes, I I am supposed to find these ducklings. I'm supposed to be galvanized to keep ducks they're meant to be here so I don't know it's all a bit weird but it's somehow all wrapped up in this colony loss now on the plus side my weird magical thinking aside the Saskatra's daughter hive is as of today still going it's relatively strong Um, the size of them in terms of population and cluster is just so much different to what I was seeing in my other colonies My neighbour, who I think I mentioned previously, had recently invented a new way to, well, it's a new um, oxalic acid vaporizer that can be used with one hand and it doesn't require like hauling around a battery. He came by that Friday to treat my colony and well, my one surviving colony. So we went ahead and we did that. And since then, I did see some mites that have dropped onto the bottom board, but really not as many as I anticipated. So that is very positive. We'll be repeating the treatment likely this weekend because it's supposed to be warm and it's recommended to do a 10 day follow up. Now, I just pulled my bee journal because I was curious about what I was looking at at mite counts before we went into winter. And what's interesting is that of my colony that actually survived, which was previously labelled hive number three, but is now hive number one because it's the only one I have, they actually went in with very slightly higher mite count than my Ohio colony and Queen Marker. So my Ohio queen and Queen Marker went into winter with a five mites to 300 count, which isn't great. My Sask daughter uh, colony went into winter with a six mites out of 300 or 300 bees. Now, my Saskatra's mother colony went in with a whopping 15 to 300. So I'm not surprised I lost them. And I actually expected to lose them a lot sooner than I did. And I had kind of similar numbers for my uh, nucleus colonies. They were relatively high. They were up around... Uh, One was at eight and one was at two mites per 300. So that was relatively low. But I don't think what killed the the nucleus colonies was really mites. I think it was just not enough of them and I didn't set them up properly. I think I'm going to do things differently. I've talked about that previously. So it's very interesting to me that despite having a slightly higher mite count, they, this colony has made it when other colonies did not. 
Um, and I think this is why it's so important that we keep journals, that we keep records because I can now look back at things and make comparisons, but it also means that in the future, so next fall, next winter, I can then do an even more informed comparison and so on. So yeah, that's where I am. I'm trying to stay positive. It's very difficult. Um, I have left a number of the hives out there with frames in them because it's just kind of easier for me. My laundry slash honey room is filled with frames and boxes and I just don't have the space anymore. I have not left frames on that have like honey or anything uh, with one exception. And I'm just sort of, there is a part of me that is optimistically hoping that some swarms might just decide to to move in once um, swarming happens without me doing anything, but we shall see. So I've blathered on long enough. Let's get on to chapter seven, initiating the move to new home of Honeybee Democracy. And as always, this chapter opens with a quote. And this quote is um, by Charles Butler from his book, The Feminine Monarchy, which was originally published in 1609. And so doth this soft shivering pass as a watchword from one to another until it come to the inmost bees, whereby it is caused a great hollowness in the pomegranate. When you see them do thus, then may you bid them farewell, for presently they begin to unknit and to be gone. So we open up this chapter with a little reminder of the swarm process. After a swarm leaves their mother hive, it will fly as a great mass of thousands of bees before coming to rest in a cluster on a tree limb, a fence post or some other raised area. For hours or even days, the cluster remains at this intermediary location while the scout bees search for and then advertise potential nest sites. Once a unanimous decision has been made, the swarm takes off once more to take up residence in the new home. This chapter will look into the mechanisms of what leads to this final flight home. So the first section of the chapter is called pre-flight warm-up. And this section opens by introducing us to Bernd Heinrich, a gifted insect physiologist who studied the mechanisms of temperature regulation in honeybee swarms. Heinrich had been interested in this area of research thanks to two previous studies that found that the core temperature of a swarm could be maintained at about 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit, the same as actually inside the hive, and that worker bees must warm their flight muscles to at least 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit in order to fly. As a hobby beekeeper himself, Heinrich also knew that worker bees will gorge on honey before swarming so that the swarm has a finite food source to provide energy for this thermoregulation. He became curious as to the exact pattern of temperature within the swarm cluster, as well as how the bees control these temperatures and utilise their finite food source effectively. As a result, in the spring of 1980, Heinrich, then a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, collected 14 natural swarms in the San Francisco Bay Area and brought them to the UC Berkeley campus to study. 
To measure the swarm temperatures effectively, he used tiny electronic thermometers called thermocouple probes. And to measure the metabolic rate, he used a cylindrical chamber of plexiglass, plexiglass even, called a respirometry vessel. What Heinrich discovered thanks to this study provides key information on understanding how a swarm prepares for flight. He discovered that the swarm cluster's core is indeed maintained between 34 to 36 degrees Celsius, which is 93 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit, regardless of the ambient air temperature. The outer layer or mantle of the cluster varies somewhat with the ambient temperature, but it's always maintained above 17 Celsius or 63 Fahrenheit, even if the ambient temperature drops below freezing. This temperature maintenance ensures that even the outer layer of bees are warm enough to remain active. If the temperature drops below 15 degrees Celsius or 59 Fahrenheit, the bees would enter chill torpor and fall from the cluster, too cold to return or even warm themselves through shivering. Interestingly, Heinrich discovered that this thermoregulation process is not as energy intensive as one might assume. At air temps above 10 Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit, the resting metabolism of the swarm, when the bees are not activating their flight muscles to generate heat, this active, um, I'm sorry, this resting metabolism provides enough heat to maintain the core temperature at 35 Celsius and the mantle temperature above 17 Celsius. Above temperatures of 20 Celsius or 67 Fahrenheit, the bees will spread themselves out to allow circulation of the air to cool the cluster to the needed temperatures. Similarly, if the mantle of bees begins to feel cool, they will cluster more tightly together to trap the heat provided through the collective bees resting metabolism. It's only once the air temperature drops below 10 Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit do the bees need to shiver to maintain steady temperatures. Heinrich thus discovered that the bees in a swarm have an effective method of temperature control, which also conserves energy resources. The bees that make up the mantle of the cluster reduce their need for active metabolism through shivering by doing two things when temperatures are cold. They maintain their body temp just above that of the chill torpor threshold and they maintain the needed temperature by huddling together instead of shivering. This discovery also demonstrates that the mantle bees are too cold to fly, which means that these bees must warm their flight muscles before the swarm can depart to its new home. Heinrich found that just before the swarm takes off towards its new nest, the temperature of the mantle rose to match the core temperature of 35 degrees Celsius. Heinrich's work on this was published under the title The Mechanisms and Energetics of Honeybee Swarm Temperature Regulation. And 10 years after this report was published in June 2002, Seeley travelled to Germany to study the pre-flight warm-up behaviour of honeybees. 
Seeley collaborated with Jürgen Tautz, the director of the research laboratory that studied honeybees at the University of Würzburg, which I really hope I'm pronouncing correctly. They also worked with two of Jürgen's graduate students, Marco Kleinhertz and Bridget Bujok. Together, their goal was to explore how the mantle of bees warm their flight muscles and they used infrared cameras and computer software to convert the camera's images into accurate temperature readings. Over two weeks, they recorded the temperature of mantle bees within a 10 by 10 centimetre or 4 by 4 inch area on two swarms, starting from when the swarm first formed its cluster until the moment that it flew towards the new nest site. As Seeley had observed previously, both swarms showed a unanimous agreement of the scouts dancing, causing scouts to become animated and moving excitedly. The infrared camera images showed something new, however. Every bee's thorax glowed with unusual warmth right before the swarm took flight. In fact, the percentage of bees with a thorax temperature of at least 35 Celsius grew exponentially in the last 30 minutes before flight. This means that all the bees in a cluster are hot enough for rapid flight. We know already that the bees at the centre of the swarm cluster maintain flight-ready temperatures, and with the rapid build-up of warmth in the outer layer of the swarm, the entire cluster can disperse into flight within just 60 seconds. The questions this left Seeley with are thus, what caused the mantle bees to begin pre-flight warm-up? what stimulated them to prepare for flight, and what was the final trigger that led to the entire swarm taking off into the air as one unit? So let's find out. This next section is entitled Piping Hot Bees. Seeley tells us that 30 minutes before the swarm takes flight to its new nest site, you can hear a distinct high-pitched piping sound. At first, these sounds are spread out with one bee at a time making the noise. But over that final 30 minutes, an ever-increasing amount of bees join in until the noise reaches a crescendo, at which point the bees take flight. Could this piping be a signal from the scout bees for their sisters to start warming up their flight muscles? Well, Seeley wanted to identify which bees start this piping. He'd first become interested in the endeavour back in the 1970s when he first began studying swarms as a graduate student. He felt that the noise originated within the cluster and so he was unable to identify the bees that were piping. Martin Lindauer also failed to identify these bees back in the 1950s, stating... Now a hundredfold high humming could be heard at the cluster, but I could not definitely find out whether this comes from the buzz runners or from other bees. And just as an aside, we will be discussing buzz runner bees later in this chapter, so just put a pin in that. Seeley inadvertently stumbled across the answer to his quest in 1999 while working on his study that worked to identify how the descent among scout bees ends, which we covered in the previous chapter and that was episode 40 of this podcast. 
So he was working with a swarm and had already labelled via paint dots the first few scouts that returned to the swarm to advertise via dance a discovered nest site. At 10.48am on August 2nd, just five minutes before this swarm would fly off to its new home, Seeley noticed that one of his marked scouts, Blue, was behaving oddly. She ran excitedly across the other bees for a few seconds before pausing and pressing her thorax against a stationary bee. Then she ran off to repeat this process of run, pause, press. Looking closer, Seely noted that when Blue grabbed another bee, she drew her wings tightly over her abdomen and her wings appeared to vibrate slightly. Seely could also hear the piping sound, but he wasn't confident that it was coming from Blue specifically. To solve this problem, Seely used a three-foot piece of vacuum hose, about six millimetres or a quarter inch in diameter, as a kind of crude stethoscope that allowed him to zero in on the sound that he was hearing. When he used this hose, he was able to ascertain that a scout bee doing the run-pause-press manoeuvre was indeed making a piping sound. To study this piping behaviour in depth, Seeley knew that he would need sophisticated recording equipment. And so he enlisted the help of Jürgen Tauts to assist him in this work. And in August 2000, Tauts came to Cornell from Germany armed with miniature microphones as well as digital audio and video equipment. The two men set up a swarm in Seeley's lab, positioning it on a vertical board for ease of observation. Inside the swarm were two small microphones and several temperature probes. Directly in front of the swarm was a video camera that recorded the bees' activity as well as the sounds coming from the swarm. To quote Seeley, With numerous microphone and thermometer wires leading from it, a video camera continuously recording its activity, and two biologists hovering over it, our swarm looked rather like a patient in an intensive care unit. Now that Seeley knew to look for a bee performing the run-pause-press activity, he was able to quickly identify these bees as soon as the piping sounds began. Based on their video recordings, Seeley and Jürgen confirmed that these piping bees were extremely excited scout bees. In fact, these piping bees would switch between piping and enthusiastic waggle dancing, all while racing over the surface of the swarm cluster. Audio recordings revealed that each pipe is a single pulse of sound, lasting just one single second, composed of a fundamental frequency, which is the lowest frequency or pitch, of 200 to 250 hertz cycles per second, plus many harmonies, repeats of the fundamental frequency, in the range of 400 to 2000 hertz. And these high frequency harmonics are what makes the sound so shrill. And as a random aside, in my notes, it says these high frequency hormones are what makes the sound so shrill, which is a rather hilarious mistake. But we move on. The fundamental frequency of the piping is identical to the wing beat frequency of a flying bee. Strong evidence that the sound is produced when a bee activates the flight muscles in her thorax, causing strong vibrations throughout her body. 
Seeley hypothesizes that most of this vibration energy is passed in the stationary bee that the scout holds onto and presses her thorax against, while some of that energy is lost into the air, creating the sound that we can hear. Seely and Jürgen were able to ascertain that the upward sweep in the pitch of each pipe is caused by the fundamental frequency going from 200 to 250 hertz, as well as an increase in the energy of the high frequency harmonics. They felt that this was likely caused by a piping bee pulling her wings together and shifting her thorax, thus raising its resonant frequency. Now, as interesting as all this is, all this Hertz information is likely not entirely clear for many of us, me included. So we're going to return now to the original question behind the study, the function of these piping bees in readying a swarm to fly. Celia and Jürgen first decided to ascertain whether piping occurs only in the last hour or so before flight, which is already known to be the time that the bees are making flight preparations via temperature increase. So to do this, they measured both the level of piping in a swarm and the temperature of the swarm's core and mantle for multiple hours before final takeoff. They found that the worker piping does indeed coincide with swarm warming. So in one example, three hours before takeoff, the swarm's core and mantle temps were about 34 degrees Celsius or 93 degrees Fahrenheit and 31 Celsius and 73 Fahrenheit respectively, with the ambient air temperature being 23 degrees Celsius, which is 73 degrees Fahrenheit. And at this time and these temperatures, there was no piping. 90 minutes, nine zero minutes before takeoff, intermittent piping was heard. And finally, in the last 30 minutes before takeoff, the piping was now continuous and loud and the mantle temperature began to rise. When the temperature throughout the swarm cluster reached 37 degrees Celsius, which is 99 degrees Fahrenheit, the bees all took off at once. Now, as enlightening as this finding is, technically it only demonstrates a correlation between piping and swarm warming, not causation. There still exists, for instance, the possibility that the piping was not the stimulus for the warming and that perhaps there was some yet undiscovered signal that led to both. In fact, one alternate theory is that bees use a shaking signal to inform cool and quiet bees that it's time to prepare for flight. And this signal, as much as it sounds, with one bee grabbing another with her front legs and violently shaking her own body up and down for a second or two, which also shakes the bee that she's holding on to. But this shaking behaviour is seen throughout the entire house hunting endeavour, and it doesn't seem to increase in the hour before taking before taking off. So it seems unlikely to be the pre-flight signal. Instead, Seely posits that the shaking signal is used to generally rouse the resting bees, making them more aware of activity within the swarm, such as dancing, piping, etc. So it's much like a pay attention shoulder shake to ensure that the bees are aware of the decision making process as a whole and as it is taking part around them. 
To prove causation between piping and swarm warming, Seeley and Jürgen needed to conduct an experiment where they could manipulate the piping signal of a swarm and then look for and record an effect on swarm warming. They could do this through artificially blasting swarm bees with the piping sound or artificially blocking them from receiving the signal and they chose to do the latter. To do this, they mounted a 25 by 20 centimetre, which is 10 by 8 inch screen, vertically over a swarm surface so that the outer layer of bees in the cluster were on the other side of the screen. On this screen, they then mounted two small cages, each of which contained a temperature probe. Soon these cages were filled with mantle bees. One cage was closed with a screen cover as soon as piping was heard, thus preventing piping bees from making contact with the bees inside the cage. The other cage was closed with a cover that contained an opening through which the piping bees could pass and interact with the bees inside. If their hypothesis was correct, and piping bees do indeed stimulate other bees to warm up in preparation for flight, then they should find that the mantle bees in the fully closed cage would not warm themselves before takeoff, whereas the bees in the open cage would do so, and that is exactly what happened. The open cage bees had a dramatic increase in temperature to 35 Celsius or 95 Fahrenheit in the last few minutes before takeoff, whereas the closed cage bees did not. In fact, when Seeley opened the closed cage, the bees seemed eerily calm and when gently prodded, they fell to the ground too cold to fly. It was clear that these bees had missed the signal to warm up in preparation for flight. This next section is entitled Boisterous Buzz Runners. Now that we know that the piping of scout bees signals the swarm to begin warming their flight muscles, we can turn our attention to what ultimately signals and triggers some 10,000 bees to take flight in one synchronised movement. Previously in this chapter, we saw Martin Lindauer refer to buzz runners or Schwerlauf in German. And these are bees that run across the swarm cluster with outspread wings buzzing furiously. These active bees will run over inactive bees or even through them, knocking them apart and buzzing persistently all the while. Lindauer noticed that these bees were active in the few minutes before takeoff, and he theorised that this was part of initiating a simultaneous flight from all the bees in the swarm. Now, Lindauer never tested this theory, and when looking at the data available, Seeley had three questions. To quote him, what is the interplay between worker piping and buzz running as a swarm prepares for and then takes flight? Which bees in a swarm perform buzz runs? And how do buzz runners know when to produce their rough signal? In May 2005, Seeley saw answers to these questions and enlisted the help of Claire Richoff, a Cornell undergraduate student who turned out to be a born researcher. And that is a Seeley quote. And if Thomas Seeley said that about me, I would wet myself. <laughs> Quite high praise coming from Seeley. Now, initially, they attempted to ascertain when buzz runners start their activity. 
To do this, they mounted a swarm of bees on a vertical board and recorded all activity that occurred within a 10 by 15 centimetre, 4 by 16 inch area on the swarm. Recording started at the first sound of piping and it ended when the swarm flew off to its new home. Playing back the video recordings in slow motion allowed them to identify any buzz runners. They also followed each buzz runner detected with a small microphone to see if these bees were also pipers. Claire's careful examination of the data revealed two key findings. She saw that more and more bees engage in buzz running in the hour just prior to takeoff until the swarm is absolutely teeming with these actively running bees. And she also identified that all buzz runners produce audio signals, whether piping or buzzes or both. At first, the running bees were piping, but eventually they would combine piping with buzz running. In fact, during the five minutes prior to takeoff, more than 80% of the running bees produced buzz runs. This means that buzz runners are the very same bees as the pipers, which in turn are scout bees. And this indicates that the scout bees give the piping signals to warm the bees in preparation for flight and then buzz run to signal and trigger flight. The evidence for this is the fact that the buzz runner is seen in only one circumstance, when idle bees are being stimulated to fly. Buzz runners are seen just before the swarm leaves the parent hive and then again when the swarm is about to leave the intermediary resting site towards its nest. Buzz running activity also rises to a crescendo just before takeoff with the bees of the swarm becoming more dispersed and active due to the barging through of these running bees. Interestingly, buzz runners will sometimes fly around the swarm cluster for a few seconds before landing and resuming their buzz running. To Seeley, this indicates that, to quote him, the buzz run signal is a ritualised form of a bee's takeoff behaviour, which consists of a bee spreading her wings, starting to buzz them, pushing clear of other bees if need be, and finally taking to the air. Now, ritualization is a biology term for the process where an incidental action evolves over time into an intentional signal. The buzz run is a good example of this process. A bee about to take flight buzzes her wings, so this is a reliable indicator to other bees that she is about to fly. The next step in the signal's evolution involves the detection of it by others and how this detection affects their behaviour, specifically their decision-making. If the signal leads to an improvement in decision-making that benefits the signalers and the receivers, then the signalers will make the signal even more conspicuous to improve detection by the receivers. It's likely that early in the evolutionary process, the quiet and resting bees were able to improve their decision making about when to take flight due to the wing buzzing of other bees. Over time, this likely resulted in more coordinated takeoffs, leading to natural selection favouring the wing buzz as a signal to other bees. Looking at the current form of the buzz run, we can see an exaggerated wing buzz, a, a bigger signal, as well as the actions of running and ramming into groups of quiet bees. To quote Seeley, 
I think the buzz run shows nicely how sometimes we can glimpse the evolutionary origins of the marvellous signals that bind B to B to B in a swarm. When examining the buzz run mechanism, Seeley has one more key question. Why did honeybees evolve this signalling system? Why should the scout bees signal to the swarm when to launch into flight? Seeley posits that since only the active scouts walking across and through the swarm can sense when all the bees in the cluster are ready for departure, when they're warm enough to fly, the buzz run signal allows them to transmit this critical information to the swarm as a whole. We know now that all the 10,000 plus bees in a swarm must warm their thorax to at least 35 degrees Celsius or 97 degrees Fahrenheit in order to fly. But how can all the bees in a swarm know when all their sisters are hot enough? If the scouts moving through the swarm are somehow measuring their sisters' temperatures, then they would be able to ascertain when all are ready for flight, and then they can signal this to coordinate the takeoff. It's possible that when a scout is performing the run-pause-press manoeuvre, she is actually measuring the warmth of the other bee's thorax. If scout bees are measuring temperatures, integrating information received, and then signalling to the swarm to take flight, then honeybee swarms demonstrate a fascinating system of behavioural control within a large group. To quote Seeley, the governance of a honeybee swarm is proving ever more extraordinary. This next section is entitled Consensus or Quorum. We have now learned that a swarm starts to switch from making a decision to implementing a decision when scout bees start piping. But how do these pipers know when to begin to pipe? Do they use dancer consensus to know when it's time to begin preparing the others for flight? This hypothesis would have a scout voting in favour of a site via dance, interacting with other scouts and dancers until they come to an agreement on a site, and then somehow this voting is also monitored so the scout knows when to begin acting on the decision. As appealing as this hypothesis is, Seeley notes two facts that go against it. Firstly, neither Lindauer or Seeley had seen any kind of polling behaviour by scouts or dancers. And secondly, Lindauer had witnessed two out of 19 swarms that took flight before a consensus was reached. Can we say that these two swarms were mere anomalies that can be dismissed? Or do they provide valuable clues into the mechanism behind the decision for a swarm to take flight? Seeley felt that there was more to these anomalous swarms and so collaborated once more with Kirk Vischer in an attempt to get to the bottom of this issue. Vischer shared Seeley's curiosity as to how scouts in a swarm know when to start piping. The two men wondered whether the scouts did so by sensing a quorum, sufficient number of scouts at one of the nest sites, rather than by consensus, agreement of dancing scouts at the swarm cluster. The quorum sensing hypothesis postulates that a scout bee votes for a site through spending time at it. And we know that the number of scouts rises for a better site. And so somehow the bees monitor their numbers at the site until they perceive that they have reached a threshold number or a quorum. This theory could explain why occasionally swarms take flight without having reached an agreement. 
To test this hypothesis, Seeley and Vicious set up an experiment on Appledore Island. First, they presented four swarms, one at a time, with two identical nest boxes that would be perceived as high quality by the bees, as they wanted to foster strong debate to see if the swarm would take flight before the dancing bees had reached a consensus. For each trial, the swarm was placed at the centre of the island and the next nest boxes were positioned near the shore, both 250 metres or 820 feet from the swarm, with one positioned northeast and the other southeast. In order to view the scout bees inside and outside the nest boxes, each was mounted against a window on the side of a lightproof hut. This plan worked and they soon found that the scout bees would discover both nest boxes at about the same time. A balanced debate over the two sites tended to occur and the swarms routinely took flight when scout bees were still actively dancing for both sites. The best example of this was one swarm that was observed on July 7th, 2002. At 12.04pm, both nest sites were being strongly advertised by dozens of bees when the swarm took to the air and then split in two. Each group slowly began to fly towards their chosen nest site before returning to the original site due to the queen remaining or returning there. This shows that consensus among dancers is not necessary for a swarm to initiate its flight to a new home but it did offer some support for the quorum hypothesis since it was noted that preparation for flight via piping consistently occurred when 20 to 30 scout bees were witnessed together at a nest box with roughly half outside and half inside. So this suggests that 20 to 30 bees present simultaneously at a nest site is a quorum. Seeley and Vischer next devised a second experiment to directly test the quorum sensing hypothesis. One way to accomplish this would be to delay the formation of a quorum at the chosen nest site. This should then delay the beginning of the piping signal and thus the takeoff of the swarm. Nothing else about the decision making process would be altered. In order to delay quorum formation, Seeley and Vischer placed five desirable nest boxes close to each other at one location on the island. This caused scouts to be dispersed among the five boxes instead of concentrated at one. They would then observe how long it took for piping to start at the swarm, followed by flight. They also conducted a control trial using just one nest box. The two trials, five boxes versus one, were performed using two different locations on the island. Four swarms were tested in all and each demonstrated the same behaviour. In the one nest box trial, a crowd of bees built up rapidly, whereas the five nest box trial had a much slower build up as the scouts were all dispersed throughout throughout the five boxes. As a result, with all four swarms, there was a delay in piping seen with the five nest box trial versus the one nest box trial. The one nest box trials had a period of time between piping and flight of 162 and 196 minutes on average, while the five nest box trials had a time of 416 and 442 minutes on average. 
It is important to note that the amount of waggle dancing at the swarm did not differ between the two trials. The level of dance consensus was also the same. And this means that this trial did successfully disrupt nothing else in the decision-making process but the formation of quorum, thus yielding strong support for the quorum sensing hypothesis. These two experiments led Celia and Fisher to conclude that a quorum of scouts at a nest site is the key stimulus for scouts to begin piping and thus initiate preparations for swarm flight. But how to reconcile the quorum sensing mechanism with the knowledge that a swarm must have reached a consensus among its scouts in order to take off as one cohesive unit to one singular nest site? And a possible answer is that the period of time it takes for a swarm to fully prepare for takeoff, which is usually an hour or more, offers sufficient time for recruitment to the best site to produce unanimous agreement. Or perhaps the piping signals inform those scouts advertising a losing site, so those sites without quorum, that the debate is over and that they should cease advertising. However, whether this is true is currently unknown. In fact, exactly how scouts reach a quorum remains unknown. It is possible that they use visual information, witnessing how many bees are inside and outside of a nest site. Or perhaps they use touch, as it has been witnessed that once a site attracts multiple scouts, the scouts begin to make frequent contact with each other. Are they counting? using the rate of contact with other bees to assess the number of fellow scouts at any one time. It's also possible that they use scent. Scout bees often fan their wings and expose their scent organs when at a potential nest site. This attracts other scouts to the site and it is possible that the preceding rise in attraction pheromones indicates to the bees just how many scouts have arrived. Seeley states that testing these possibilities remains a subject for future study, so I guess we just have to stay tuned. And this next section is called Why Quorum Sensing? Knowing that a consensus ultimately needs to be reached in order for a swarm to successfully fly as one to its newly chosen site, why do honeybees rely on quorum sensing instead of consensus sensing? Seeley suggests that consensus sensing would be extremely difficult for the bees, as this would likely involve each scout needing to travel over the swarm, read dances, and keep a running tally of all these readings. This would become increasingly difficult as a swarm increases in size, as large swarms would have more scouts and thus more dancers to pull. In contrast, a quorum size can be fixed. It's not affected by swarm size. Seeley also suggests that quorum sensing strikes a balance between speed and accuracy in decision making. Once enough scouts have appeared at one of the sites, takeoff preparation can begin, even if other scouts are still advertising. It seems then that there is no real need to wait for consensus when the outcome can be sensed in advance via quorum. Relying solely on consensus would greatly delay the time until takeoff, which would lead to a depletion in the swarm's energy reserves, which is the honey that they ate previously. 
Knowing that swarms rarely take off after 5pm, this delay could cause a swarm to rest overnight, which would result in an even greater energy drain. Seeley also considers the matter of accuracy. It seems as if the quorum used by bees is 20 to 30 bees present at the same time at a site, which requires some 75 scout bees supporting this site, if we consider that a scout spends only part of her time at the site and the rest with the swarm. Using this 20 to 30 bee quorum appears to ensure accuracy because it guarantees that scouts will not begin piping until a large number of them have examined a site and judged it worthy. A poor site would not attract a large number of scouts, thus would not reach a quorum, and so this lower quality site is avoided or ruled out. Even if a single scout were to judge a poor quality site as high quality, when other scouts visit and examine it, they will correct her error by then refusing to advertise for it. To quote Seeley, I suspect that quorum size is a parameter of the bee's decision-making process that has been honed over evolutionary time to provide an optimal balance between speed, favoured by a small quorum, and accuracy, favoured by a large quorum. We will examine this matter further in chapter nine. And that is the end of chapter seven. Yay! So up next is chapter eight, which is steering the flying swarm, which is probably exactly like what it sounds. I don't know because I haven't read it yet. So um, I hope you enjoyed this. It almost didn't happen. Um, I have had absolutely bonkers previous week and I'm currently kind of under the weather with a minor infection. So I have been typing things up all day to get this done. Um, And I really thought I was going to have to post like some kind of weird mini episode. But I think I've got this done. Unless there's any major editing issues, this is going live on Thursday morning and we are all set and I can start working on chapter eight. So thank you so much for listening. Um, thank you to everyone who follows me on Instagram and Facebook. I love chatting with you guys. I've got a couple of people now who reach out to me relatively frequently and we have a lovely sort of catch up about how things are going. I know a lot of people have struggled with their hives this winter and as someone who also has faced colony loss, you know, my heart goes out to you. I completely understand what you're going through and all we can do is learn from this as best we can and move forward into this new spring, which is almost, almost here. Now, I have heard, and I don't know if this is still the current theory, but I have heard that many new beekeepers only last for the first three years, at which point the vast majority of them, I've heard everything from 60% to 90% of beekeepers quit after three years. And I remember when I first heard this statistic and, well, I say statistic, it's from anecdata, but let's just call it that for now. When I first heard this, I thought, oh, bloody hell, what am I getting into? Quickly followed by, haha, that won't be me. I'm stubborn, which is also true. And I will say that with this recent loss of all but one of my colonies, I can completely understand why people would quit because if you're losing all of your bees every single year and every single year you have to start over, 
not only is that a massive kick in the teeth and emotionally draining, but it's really expensive. This isn't a cheap hobby. Depending on where you live, you're paying anything from 100 to even as much as $200 for a package or a nucleus colony of bees, just one. And if you have to do that every single year on top of all the mite treatments that we have to buy, which are quite expensive, particularly uh, the formic acid treatments, which are the only ones currently approved for use with honey supersol, which is why they're so popular and probably why they're so expensive. You're spending an absolute bloody fortune. And I can absolutely see why people just think, God, this isn't worth it. But I have to be honest, even after losing Queen Marker and how much that just literally gutted me, like I, I genuinely felt sick about it. It has never crossed my mind to quit. Now I say this and you watch like God knows what's in the future for me. Maybe one day I'll pack this all in. But how I feel right now is I just I can't. It just doesn't pass my mind because I just love being with the bees so much. I just do. I love it. And as much as some days I just think, oh no, I don't want to sit and type up all this stuff from Honeybee Democracy. I'm tired. I don't want to have to use my brain. Once I start, I always get so wrapped up in it. You know, like all these chapters have been great. This particular chapter in was really fascinating. And, and the more I typed up, the more sort of enamored I got with this whole process and the visual images, you know, or the, the mental image of the buzz runners and when they grab hold of other bees and shake them to like wake them up and make sure they're paying attention. It was very evocative. And so I just, I just, I'm in it. I'm in this for the long haul. I just can't give it up. But if you are thinking about quitting, that's okay as well. I think it's perfectly okay to realize if something isn't for you and if you want to move on. I actually saw someone in a recent um, local group of mine they've been doing this for three years and they sold all their colonies. They basically said like, here's how much I've got. Here's all the equipment that comes with them. I have this many colonies. You have to pick them up. This is how much money I want for them. Let me know. And they sold everything within like, I think it was half a day. So it happens and it's okay if you want to give up and you want to do something else. Um, I personally hope that you don't because I just I find it so rewarding and I want everyone to find it rewarding but if you're not that's okay so anyway all this just to say if you're having a hard time you know just look at your journal look at what you've been doing with the hive see if you can identify anything that stands out to you as what could be an issue uh, whether it's the mite treatments you use and you want to try something different, whether you didn't wrap and now you think maybe you should have wrapped the hive, whether you use um, screen boards or solid boards, do you have uh, ventilation up above as well as below? Because remember, you want that air to move through, to circulate and then leave, not to linger and build up humidity. Uh, did you have a moisture buildup? Do you know why that might have occurred? Was there something that was preventing it from draining? Um, was there an issue of ventilation? You know, just see what you can learn. Write it all down or type it up or however you store that information. And then you will have it available to you in the future. And that can be absolutely invaluable. And so I'm going to leave you with that this week. Um, 
I will just do a quick thing. So this is the point where if you don't want to hear about my personal updates, you can sign off now. And I say thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me again in two weeks as we move on with this book. We are so close to finishing it. It's only getting more interesting. So I hope you stick with me. Um, So bye. Thank you. And for those of you who stick around, um, I don't have a huge update. I just want to say, you know, I have been kind of under the weather the last couple of days with this infection and it's kind of running me a little ragged. And with the ducklings and how much cleaning you have to do of ducklings and then this colony loss, I've been all over the place. But I feel like I'm slowly but surely coming back into myself. And spring is almost here. It's really almost here. Regardless of what the weather does, technically spring starts on the 20th. So we just have to hold out a little bit longer. And um, I just... uh, I just feel so much better with the sunshine and getting to be outside. And and one thing that I'm trying to do is find the fun in everything a little bit more. So instead of dwelling on what's difficult, trying to do things that are purely just for fun or trying to find what's fun about the things that I kind of have to do, you know, like my all my animal chores or whatever. And one thing I did just for fun is previously this winter, I promised myself. So you might remember I talked about promises I was making myself to help me get through my seasonal affective disorder and depression. And one of the promises I made to myself was to use our fire pit because we really haven't used it as much as we could. And so the other day I got a fire going out there and even though it was kind of cold, the sun was still out. And so my husband and I like sat around the fire pit. I was reading a book about raising ducks. He was reading a paper for one of his classes and we just sat out there and I had a, you know, a travel mug of steaming hot coffee and Chappie was curled up in the leaves nearby, you know, keeping an eye on us. And it was just perfect it was so lovely to have that like just time to sit and be quiet and listen to the birds and read you know a good book and it was just so wonderful and another thing that I kind of seized the moment on was I drove out about 45 to 50 minutes away to drop off the ducklings with someone who was then going to go the rest of the way to the the sanctuary because it was quite far out And on the way back, I realized that I was going to be really near my favorite local cidery. So I popped in to grab a cheeky little four pack of different new ciders to try and a bottle of dry red wine that they recently produced. And it's just wonderful. It's 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 so good to just take these moments and I don't know make memories take a breath rest like listen to things and just spend more time outside so if you make promises to yourself I hope that you stick with them and I hope you can join me in this new attempt at finding the fun in everything and seizing the opportunities so I hope you're doing okay um I really hope if possible that you found out whether you're getting the vaccine for COVID-19 anytime soon my mum and my brother in England just finished up the course. So they've had both vaccines now. And I heard a rumour, and I would like to believe that this is true, that everyone over the age of 16 will be eligible in Ohio for the vaccine starting March 29th. Now, just because we're eligible doesn't mean we're all going to get it then, because I've heard that we don't have enough vaccine yet. But that is a very positive step in the right direction. And it's making me hopeful that I might actually get to see my family soon. 
So I'm sending out all positivity, I'm sending out all fun thoughts and as always I'm thanking you from the bottom of my heart for joining me on this kind of bonkers journey that I'm doing with bees and chickens and ducks and reptiles and snakes and everything else that I do. So be safe, take care and as always hug your hens and then wash your hands. Thanks so much guys, talk to you soon, bye bye.